Okay, um, we are in, as you can see from your notes, and uh, you're in charge of any stragglers. You got the extras. Um, we're in John 2 and 3, and before we get there, though, I was just perusing the library over here, and I saw these cards that we actually made a while ago, and I, um, I thought that they might be helpful. Now, what we're not doing in this class, um, so like if you come on a normal Thursday night in the middle of the semester here, you'll see the pace is much slower. If you come to um, like my class on a Sunday morning, um, normally in the spring or fall, the pace is much slower. We are literally we're going word for word through the text in both of those contexts. And and what we're trying to do is is whenever we teach like that, we're trying to not only dig deep through the scriptures and find what is true and what is good and what we what we can learn and how we can be formed into the image of Christ. And so we're not. We're not glossing over anything. We're going to take every single word as we can. We also hope that in the process of finding that together, that you learn to do it on your own. And so you'll see, in, in even in our preaching style, we are constantly, uh, I don't know if it's subliminal or subversive or whatever, but we are teaching and preaching in ways that try to show a reasonable way to read the Scriptures in a way that can be done at home. You don't need a professional to do it with... Um, with some basic tools and a good mindset and some rules in place and then maybe some resources on the side, you can read and understand the scriptures and apply them to your life. That's kind of what we, we try to do around Sunnybrook and here at the table. And a few years ago, we made this little chart. So I'll, I'll pass this around. Um, there should be enough for everybody. So just kind of whip these around and I'll, I'll walk you through it real fast. And again, this isn't something that we are necessarily doing in this class, but this is one of those things that I like to tell people. Tape this into the inside flap of your Bible. Um, because what it does is, it, this is these are the basic rules of biblical interpretation. Um, these, are, the, these ideas or these steps are what prevent us from taking um, a passage like Philippians 4.13 is the quintessential example. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, that doesn't mean that me at 5'9 can go and dunk just because I believe in Jesus. It's just not going to happen. Um, what, though, keeps me from reading it that way? Reading it properly, understanding what Paul wanted to communicate in Philippians 4.13. And so you can even see, if you follow the chart, we first discern the author's intended meaning, distill from that the universal truths, and then reapply those, recontextualize those into, into 2016, Stillwater America, whatever it is your context might be. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about this. If you want to talk about this further, if you have some questions or if you need more, we can get you more. Um, gr come grab me or Drew after we're done here tonight. But I just thought this is a really helpful resource to, uh, to get you um, some general hermeneutical or interpretive rules. Okay, last week Drew went through um, John chapter 1. And so what I want to do before we let Kenny... Uh, razzle, dazzle us through chapters 2 and 3. And again, we're going, we're going quickly because John's, like any other gospel, got a lot of verses in each chapter. Um, I want us to talk about the structure of John before we get in there. I think that this is, especially in the four gospels, I could make the argument for any book of the Bible, but in the four gospels, understanding the structure of this document is key to, to properly reading it. And let me tell you why. John did not write, now it, it's a massive book, but he didn't write it to be read in pieces. 
He simply didn't. Mark didn't write his gospel to be read in sections. But that's how we read it, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's just understanding that there are limitations to reading a book like that. Where I pick it up and I read a little bit out of Mark 13 today. Tomorrow I'll finish Mark 13 and then the next day I'll jump into Mark 14. Mark, if he, if he were here to talk to us, he would say, Why do you keep starting and stopping? Why don't you just read the story? And I think that we are actually held hostage by the fact that our books have chapters and numbers and all that stuff and little headings in them. And where I can sit down and just read through many chapters of my favorite book, Huckleberry Finn, I could just sit there and read and read and read because I don't have all these little, well, maybe I should stop now because I've read 13 verses. That doesn't work in other books. So I can naturally pick them up, know where I left off, and keep the story going through. When I read John, on the other hand, how many of us would open up John chapter 2 as Jesus performs this incredible miracle at this wedding and do so completely unaware of what happened in John chapter 1? Despite the fact that a week ago, Drew taught John chapter 1, most of us would pick up chapter 2 and read it wholly disconnected from the previous chapter and completely uninterested in the following chapter. And that's why I think that these outlines, the structure of these books, are helpful. Because the truth is, it's hard to sit down and read John all the way through. I've done it a couple of times. It takes like three hours to just sit there and read it through. Um, but having the structure of a book next to it is helpful. When I, read, when I read Gospels, I want to have the outline next to it. When I read Acts, I want to have maps next to it. When I read Old Testament history, I want timelines these, these little devices help me situate myself in the story so I don't lose track of the flow of the, of the arguments being made, of the, the chain of events that are taking place, of these geographical markers. I want those things in front of me. So, John has a very specific structure. The other three Gospels do as well. Matthew's got a five-part structure. Mark more or less has a three-part structure. Luke has a, a strange structure where he's got these bookends and this long travel narrative in Luke 9 through 19. John has a basic three-part structure. And last week, we've already, this is the good news, we've made a little progress. Drew covered the entire first part. John's Gospel, in a nutshell, has a prologue, a middle section, and an epilogue. That's John's Gospel. And that middle section is this dramatic narrative that has two major movements, or two acts. And so, I just want to walk real quickly through this, uh, this particular outline, so we can see what it is that John is trying to communicate as he arranges material. One of the things that can be really confusing about this particular gospel is that John does not care one iota about chronology. He's not interested in it. If you've ever read the, his, his, his letter, 1 John, he just swirls around ideas. It can be very confusing to follow. But John is a thematic writer. He doesn't care about chronology like Luke does. He doesn't care about chronology like Matthew does. He's very thematic. And he structures his gospel with these two massive movements through the narrative. So let's, let's just glance at this really quickly. The, in the introduction, the, the, the prologue, we have the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. You have the summary of the entire book there in chapter 1. It's, it's, it's this clue as to what the rest of the book is going to be about. It is the, the Apostle John giving you the interpretive keys to be more in the know than, than Jesus' audience will be in the Gospel. Jesus' audience is really trying to figure out who He is. 
But John tells us he is the creator. He's the son. He's the king. He is the Messiah. He, he gives us several titles right there at the beginning. That's the prologue. Then he gets into the story, the gospel drama. Um, there's this transition from John the Baptist witness to John the evangelist witness. So it opens up with John uh, proclaiming him in the, in the wilderness, baptism, and all the way to really the end of the book. So the first half of the book is typically described as the book of signs. The back half is the book of glory. Book of signs, book of glory. And we're going to talk a little bit about the signs today. But this gospel has in it seven signs that John calls out, specifically seven either sayings or actions or miracles that Jesus performs, and he calls these signs that are intended to say something about him. So, you have the first, you have the first of this little section in Act 1, the transition from John to Jesus, his ministry begins. You have what we will cover today, the Cana cycle. It starts out at a wedding in Cana, and it comes back through Cana over these few chapters. And in this section, you'll have signs 1 through 3. We'll talk about that extensively this, uh, this evening. Then in uh, the third part, you have the transition from Jerusalem to Bethany, where Jesus is um, working with the festival cycle. Um, particularly, John is very interested in the, in the Jewish festivals. In fact, his is the only gospel, I think Kenny mentions this, his is the only gospel um, that is helpful in terms of dating how long Jesus' ministry actually was. John's very meticulous about telling us how many Passovers there were. There were three, so Jesus' ministry was at least two and a half years long. And so we have this this, uh, this narrative in here where Jesus comes in and he is claiming to be the, the focus of all of these festivals that the Jews celebrate. Then you have the climactic sign, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then after all of these signs, seven of them, you see that the Jews still reject Jesus. Then you move into Act 2. So that's the close of the book of signs. Act 2 opens up. You have the book of glory. And this really is simply John's version of the Passion Week. Um, Jesus, in part one, Jesus anticipates his exaltation. If I were, and I make up these hypothetical situations, if I were stranded on a desert island, and I was told I could only take one small section of scripture with me to read only that for the rest of my pathetic life on this desert island, it would be these chapters. John chapter 13 through 17. In it, I feel that I have just about every major doctrine about who Jesus is and who the Father is, and who the Spirit is, and what the church is intended to do. You have Jesus serving His disciples. You have Jesus claiming to be the resurrection and the life. You have Jesus talking about life attached to Him as He is the true vine. You have the, Jesus talking about the sending of the Spirit, and you have Jesus praying for His disciples. It's this beautiful section. I think it's, it's just this wonderful, wonderful little section in John's Gospel where He anticipates His exaltation or His glory. And then he completes his earthly mission. That's the passion narrative. And then the conclusion says that based on all of this, based on the book of signs, all these miracles that Jesus has performed, and based on his work, his exaltation or his lifting up or his glorification, do you now believe? Is kind of the question that John's gospel ends with. And then the epilogue is Jesus' third and final resurrection appearance and his commissioning of Peter and then the disciple whom Jesus loved 
who we know to be John the Apostle. This is not a, an outline I wrote. This is just the favorite one that I've ever come across. Um, and so, there's the book I got it from. Any questions about this? This is one of those things um, that's worth keeping in your Bible so long as you're studying John. And when you get it out, say, okay, where am I in the story? Because John is moving somewhere. He's not, he's not just recording events as they come. He is organizing the truth about who Jesus is to prove a very specific point. And so knowing his, his structure here can be helpful. Okay, let us, you want to, it should just turn right on and hit play. Turn to Kenny Bowles. For those of you, there's a couple of you that are new here. Um, this is, this is um, a free resource offered by a school in Joplin, uh, Missouri called uh, Ozark Christian College. And what they do is they bring in their professors and they have them teach. And they do some, one, that basically this is Kenny Bowles, um, a now retired professor. And a uh, wonderful, wonderful man who, who comes in and teaches basically a condensed version of his Gospel of John class. So he's going to cover a lot of verses today in just a couple, you know, 20-ish minutes. So this is Kenny Bowles. In this lesson, we're going to cover John chapters 2 and 3. And I'm going to call these chapters Old and New. The old water of purification of the Jews is going to be turned into sparkling new wine. The dirty old temple is going to be cleansed in the second half of chapter 2. And Nicodemus in chapter 3 is going to find out that he must be born again, born anew. And so the old is giving way to the new with the coming of the Messiah. So let's start in now with John chapter 2. We find Jesus and his disciples have been invited to a wedding at Cana of Galilee, a small town not far from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And when they get there, Jesus' mother is uh, part of the uh, serving uh, group, I guess, because she becomes aware and alerts Jesus to the fact that they have run out of wine. We need to say a word about wine to start with because uh, people get upset thinking that Jesus made a bunch of wine and made a bunch of people drunk. So let's understand what wine was like in the first century. First of all, Natural wine, that is grape juice that has fermented, becomes at maximum 12% uh, alcoholic. The Jews and the Romans and the Greeks all diluted this wine before they drank it. They did that for two or three reasons. One was to make it go farther, but the water made the wine safe to drink so that they did not produce such intoxication, and the wine made the water safe to drink. You'll remember that Timothy was told by Paul to take a little wine for his stomach and not just drink water. Even today, water in many places of the world, the Mediterranean uh, countries included, water can make a person sick with Montezuma's revenge. Now, 12% alcohol in the, that's the limit of natural wine, is diluted with three parts of water to one part wine, so that now we have of these four parts, only one part is wine, and that makes a fourth of that original number, so that the alcoholic content is now just 
a tumbler of eight ounces of this or less would give you a very small quantity of alcohol, actually about a quarter of an ounce of uh, actual alcohol uh, going into your system. A person would have to linger a long time and drink a lot of this kind of diluted wine to become intoxicated. And so, those of us who are teetotalers like myself would just assume that Jesus never did do this, but facts are facts, and people in that world in that day drank a very diluted kind of wine with water making the wine safe and wine making the water safe. And so Jesus is going to turn the water into wine. There are, sitting nearby, six stone water pots. Now these are good-sized water pots. They are each uh, containing two or three measures. And we don't have a word that exactly equates with the, the measure that they used because that measure was eight or nine gallons. And so you have a stone pot that holds not just eight or nine gallon, but two or three of these eight or nine gallon quantities. So let's round it off to 20 or 30 gallons. Six pots holding 20 or 30 gallons of water. Jews would come in and they would uh, dip their hands in the water for cleansing, ceremonial cleansing. And so the water is kind of stale and perhaps a little bit dirty. Jesus says to the servants, now I want you to go out to the well and I want you to draw water and bring it in and fill the water pots up to the brim. Each water pot, 20 or 30 gallon, up to the brim, times six, we're looking at, do the multiplication, we're looking at 120 to 180 gallons that will be turned into wine. That is an incredible quantity of wine. I want you to remember that quantity, huge amount. When the wine is drawn out, I should call it water, except it has been turned into wine now, and they draw it and they take it in, and it turns out, as the uh, chief uh, of the feast uh, turns to the groom, and the groom's family were responsible for providing the wine, and they were in the position of being hugely embarrassed and shamed when the wine ran out. So Jesus was sort of saving their neck when he provides the wine. Anyway, the uh, chief uh, of the feast turns to the groom and says, you know, what usually happens is that people put the good wine out first, and then uh, when people have all had some and some have had too much, and if you've been to a wedding like that, there are some people that want to take advantage of the free booze, and why spend a lot of money providing extra booze for the guy that's getting drunk? And so the guy says, usually they put the worst wine out later. But you have saved the best for last. And we learn an, imp an important lesson about the kingdom of God, that both the quantity and the quality of what is provided by Jesus is just outstanding. It puts me in mind of the parable of the sower where the seed that fell into the good ground there in the synoptics grew and the harvested 
30, 60, 100 fold, an incredible harvest, because that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. The disciples saw this. This was the first sign, and it was performed there in Cana of Galilee, and they put their faith in him, that is to say they believed in him. Now, about this time, it is time for the Passover, and that's one of the uh, additional uh, unique characteristics of the Gospel of John. He is the only Gospel that lists the Passovers one by one, and it is by listing these feast occasions that we understand that the ministry of Jesus was three years long. We would not get that information from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But the first Passover of Jesus' ministry has come, and Jesus goes down to Jerusalem with his disciples. And when they get there, they find a distressing, disappointing situation going on in the temple. Now, you probably understand that the temple had both uh, a temple building with the Holy of Holies at one end and the where only the high priest could go, and then the holy place where the priest went, and then around that is going to be the courtyard of the men, and you also have the courtyard of the women, and then around the entire compound you have the courtyard of the Gentiles. Now, when people brought animals to be sacrificed at the temple, the animals had to be examined, and they had to be flawless. And it would not be a good idea to drag your goat all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem only to find out that it wouldn't qualify. So people usually just waited and they bought a pre-inspected animal there. Now where are we going to have these animals uh, set up so that people can buy them for the uh, sacrifice? Do you want a bunch of uh, livestock animals inside the temple building? Of course not. Where the uh, men go to worship? No. Or Jewish women? No. You will set up shop out here in the courtyard of the Gentiles because who cares if we have turned the courtyard of the Gentiles into a smelly barnyard? Likewise, you had to have the right kind of coins to make a temple offering. And the closest coin to what was a shekel in the Old Testament was a silver coin out of Tyre not easily available on the street, but available at the temple. And so you have people selling animals, you have money changers setting up shop, and there we are. Okay, Jesus goes in, sees all that mess, remembers that Scripture had intended that God's house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. And he fashions a whip of cords and he begins to drive out the animals. I want you to notice that neither here nor at the end of his ministry, where in the synoptics he cleanses the temple a second time, in neither place does it say that Jesus was angry. But he was purposeful, and he was driving out animals, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and so animals are going every which way, and coins are rolling all over the place, people scrambling for the coins, trying to recover their animals, and Jesus says, get these out of here because that's not what you're going to do to his father's house. The leaders challenge him. He explains, you destroy this temple, meaning his body, and I will raise it in three days. 
they did not understand, and misquoting that will become part of the accusations against him at the end of his life. But that's another story that we'll be getting to later. So Jesus cleanses the temple. He does additional signs. And at the end of chapter 2, people put their faith in him. They believe in him. We need to move on to chapter 3. And now we run into a man by the name of Nicodemus. He comes by night. Probably because he doesn't want to be seen doing this in the daytime. He is a respectable Jewish leader. He is a Pharisee. There were only 6,000 total Pharisees uh, in the ancient world. He was one of them. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. There were only 70 of these men who are the supreme council of Judea, of all the Jews. And Nicodemus comes by night to talk to Jesus. He wants to flatter him, I guess to start with, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Jesus, as is characteristic in all of his ministry, usually does not respond immediately to what people say. He doesn't tell them what they ask or what they want to know. He tells them what they need to know. And so in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. Well, Nicodemus doesn't understand how can a grown man be born all over again. That won't work. And so Jesus says in John 3, 5, you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Water is referring to baptism. Virtually every commentary you could pick up will agree with that point. Sometimes you will hear that uh, water is supposed to be referring to like when a woman's water breaks, but the Greeks had a separate word for that called prophorus, and that is not the word that Jesus used here. Jesus used simply the word for water, not prophorus, prophorus. That is an R, and I'm thinking wrong language. Prophorus. And the whole context of what's been going on points to baptism as well. In chapter 1, John has been baptizing in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized there by John, of course. Uh, in chapter 2, you have the water of uh, purification. But in chapter 3, you will continue to have baptizing. And in chapter 4, Jesus is baptizing and making more disciples and baptizing them than even John. So in the middle of all of this about being born of water, Jesus says also born of spirit. And I do want to stress to you that when Jesus has said you must be born of water, not just water, but also spirit, that when he continues, it is spirit that he wants to stress the most. Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, should have understood something about regeneration about the Spirit bringing new life into God's people. He should have understood, should have known, didn't. Jesus chides him for that. But Jesus is getting the people ready for a message of being born again. That's why at the end of his ministry, like in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus sends his disciples to go out into all the world and to preach the Gospel and to baptize everyone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Regeneration, new life, everything made new for Nicodemus. 
Now, as we continue, Jesus is still talking to Nicodemus, and He says, Marvel not that I say to you, and He changes from the singular you, which shows up in the Greek, to the plural you, because this is a message not just for Nicodemus, it's for everyone. You, plural, must be born again. By the time we get to verse 14, Jesus makes a very interesting observation. And He says, that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man Himself be lifted up. Now back in the Old Testament, you had a situation where there was a fiery serpent and biting people, people dying, plague sent by God. And Moses speaks to God and God arranges for a solution to the problem. Make a bronze serpent, put it up on a post, and whoever looks upon that will live. Look and live. And Jesus said, I will be lifted up in the same way. And people will have to look upon Him. As we go to chapter 8, we'll see lifted up again. And then especially in chapter 12, along about verse 36, Jesus will say, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Me. And the next verse says, He said this, indicating by what manner of death He was going to die. So Jesus knows He will have to die. And this leads us to everyone's favorite verse, John 3.16, that God loved the world and He gave His Son that whoever believes in Him would have everlasting life. Now one question does come up in connection with that wonderful passage. If you're looking at your own Bible there, you may have red letters. And if so, where do the red letters end? Because um, we're not really sure. The red letters could end at verse 15. They could end at verse 19. They could end at verse 21. Not too sure. It doesn't particularly matter whether John is explaining or whether Jesus is saying this, because it's true either way that God sent His Son to save the world, and whoever does not believe in the Son is condemned already. And those are somewhat frightening words. Now, as we go on into this chapter, moving toward the end, we'll find out by verse 22 that Jesus and John are both baptizing. They're both preaching the news of repentance. The kingdom is at hand. They're both preaching a baptism for the remission of sins. But both of them at this point are preaching a preliminary kind of baptism. The baptism of Jesus and the baptism of John are the same thing at this point. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. It is only later, after the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, that Christian baptism in the name of Jesus becomes something more and different when the gift of the Holy Spirit is added. Because at this point, as John 7 will say, the Holy Spirit is not yet given. So, Jesus and John are both baptizing with this preliminary baptism. And I would remind you that on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is addressing Jerusalem and all these people who have previously gone out to be baptized in the wilderness, he says, now repent and be baptized every one of you. Not just those of you who haven't been baptized already, but every one of you. Because now something is new, different, and, and more. One or two final things. 
Near the end of John chapter 3, John says, when he finds out uh, that his disciples tell him, Jesus, this, this new guy is making and baptizing so many more disciples than you are. Everybody's going off to follow him. And John says, that's okay. He must increase. I must decrease. The attitude of John the Baptist, who had been a remarkable figure, uh, for a while the most important man in all of Palestine. But his attitude is remarkable as he steps aside to make room for Jesus so that everyone could look at him because John knew his job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He must increase. I must decrease. A good motto for all of us. And then one last thing. At the very end of John 3, uh, it speaks of God giving the Spirit without measure. But it says that in the context of His own Son, Jesus Christ. We should not think that God gives His Spirit without measure, limitlessly, to every one of us. The Spirit brought inspiration to the prophets of the Old Testament, but not to all of us. The Spirit brought the work, power to work miracles to the apostles, but not to all of us. The Spirit does dwell in all of us, but only Jesus had the Spirit given without measure. If you read those verses there at the end of uh, chapter 3, you'll see that clearly John is talking about uh, the giving of the Spirit to Jesus Himself. Jesus has full inspiration. Jesus has full power to work miracles, even raise the dead. Jesus has the Spirit completely. And so this kind of wraps up chapters 2 and 3, which were old and new, where the old water of purification is turned into sparkling, wonderful wine, where the old dirty temple is cleansed as Jesus promises the, the raising up of a whole new temple, Himself, His own body. And in chapter 3, even the leader, the religious wise man of Israel must be born again as the Spirit comes into his life and regenerates him as he puts faith in Jesus, the one whom God has sent to save the world. I should say this one last thing that I neglected to say in John 3.16, and I don't want to leave it out. John 3.16, God gave the supreme, sublime gift, the greatest gift, when He gave His Son, that we could do a simple action to put our faith in Him and follow Him, and then by that have eternal life, the greatest gift that was ever given. The old is giving way to the new in Jesus Christ. All right, I appreciate your patience. Last week it was the speakers. This week it was the streaming thing. We will have it all figured out next week. 
um, we'll have it downloaded and we will know what speakers to play it on. So last week, if you thought the sound was really muffled in here, it's because we had the speakers outside turned on and we were blasting it out there. <laughs> we figured it out, though. So, Okay. Um, I don't know about you, but I love listening to Kenny. Um, not only is he brilliant, um, I, his voice, it's got like this John Hurt resonance with like a Sean Connery lisp on top. I could just listen to him all day long. But um, flip, your, flip your notes to the back and we, we will work our way through these. I'll start with this question and maybe we'll answer it. We'll see. Um, the, these two chapters are some of those that uh, maybe it, it feels this way because I'm, I'm left to teach them. But I wonder if you guys feel this way when you read through them. Uh, these are those chapters that I don't know what to do with, practically speaking. Um, these chapters are full of stories that are intended to generate belief. Um, these, are, these are almost evangelistic chapters. These are stories for people who don't otherwise know who Jesus is and um, a, a way of explaining the process of coming to faith in Him and, and life in Him. But you'll notice there are there's just no practical instructions for those of us in the church already. Now, I love these chapters and I think that our time is well spent in these chapters, but Think through how do you, so use John 2 and 3 as, as a little bit of a, a prototype. What do we do with these kinds of chapters as church members, as people who have already experienced this life offered in Christ, who already understand this rebirth that comes through the Spirit? What do we do with chapters like this? And, uh, and let, we'll talk through a little bit, and then maybe we'll be able to answer it here in a minute. Now, we have... We have several stories. We have the turning the water to wine. Um, we have the, the cleansing of the temple. We have the, um, the encounter with Nicodemus and then the, the dialogue between Jesus and John. Too much to cover in terms of some, some of a, more of a theological deep dive. So one of the things that I want to I take a run at here is... Uh, sorry, I realize I left Sunday's date on there. Um... I want to look at the concept of a sign because this is a this is a big theme in John's book and it's one that will be with us for several weeks all the way through chapters 11 and 12. So I want to I want to look at what does he mean by when he, when he's calling out Jesus's actions as particular signs and and what is he wanting us to catch here? John of the four gospels quotes the Old Testament by far the least. By far the least. But he alludes to it in so many ways. John is saturated with the Old Testament Scriptures in such a way that he can, he can make little nods and glances and references and allusions to the Old Testament. And he's drawing on the Old Testament. He relies heavily on Old Testament imagery. After all, he's the writer of Revelation, which leans very heavily on Ezekiel and Deuteronomy and Zechariah and various other Old Testament text. It's drawing all the imagery. Same author. Revelation, John's Gospel, John 1, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Same guy. He knows his Old Testament. He doesn't quote it, but he knows it. So what is he pulling from? When He's not inventing the concept of a sign, but it is uniquely John in the New Testament. It's uniquely John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus doing miracles, but they don't, they don't describe it as signs and wonders. For whatever reason, John uses very specific language 
to describe what Jesus is doing. So, just like you would do with Revelation, Revelation isn't complicated if you know your Old Testament. You use the Old Testament as your lexicon, as your image storehouse, as your database for references to go in and interpret new books. Knowing John is using his Old Testament heavily, let's look at how he pulls on the concept of a sign from the Old Testament. This word, or this phrase, or this idea is, is referenced roughly 120 times in the Old Testament. Particularly, it's, it's, it's concentrated around two events or ideas. The first of which is the Exodus account. And so just think through all the things that take place in the Exodus account. It is full of miraculous intervention on God's behalf. It's full of God sending Moses and Aaron to do certain things, and they're described as signs. So let's look at just a couple of examples. I've, let, I've given you a number of references that is far from an exhaustive list, but in bold I, I have a few that I want to go look at. Exodus 7. <clears throat> Verses, uh, well, I'm just going to start at the beginning of Exodus 7. Um, the first six chapters of Exodus describe the birth of Moses, the upbringing of Moses, the, the problems in Egypt, the suffering of the Hebrews. And in chapter 7, um, you know, back in, in chapter 3, you have, you have God interacting with Moses from the bush, and he tells him that my name is the great I Am, gives him his personal name. Down here in chapter 7, he's telling Moses and Aaron what he wants them to go and do. So I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, it's a new name, it's come up um, from chapter 3, but the all caps L-O-R-D is his name, Yahweh. The Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And Moses was 80 years old, Aaron was 83 years old, and they spoke to Pharaoh. A couple of things. Here we see the purpose um, for the signs that, he, that, that Moses and Aaron are going to perform on God's behalf, or God's going to perform through them. It is to demonstrate uh, who God is and what He wants. And it seems as, the, as if it would otherwise have worked if God hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart. If any of you think that, you know, um, Judas got an unfair shake by being kind of damned from the jump to, to betray Jesus as if he had no choice. Beat Pharaoh in his problem too. So um, God gets to do what God wants and he's, he has the, the most free will out of everyone with free will. So he gets to harden Pharaoh's heart if he chooses. But it says that he, uh, where am I? Verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. So we have this, this notion that God is going to demonstrate who He is and why He's superior and why His way is what's going, what, how things are going to, to take place. And Pharaoh is just not going to comply. Um, just a, a side note, I always find this interesting when discussing the Exodus. He says that he is going to um, bring his people out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So we know these are the ten plagues. 
these aren't just ten random magic tricks that God performs. These are actually judgments. These are ten strategic assaults on ten Egyptian gods. So everything that is destroyed in a plague is actually an Egyptian god, and the culmination is the fertility god is, is deemed impotent when he cannot save the firstborn son of every living thing. This is God establishing his, superior, his superiority over the gods of Egypt. Continuing on in verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it might become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and just as the Lord commanded, Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, in spite of the signs, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So, in, in this story, the signs are communicating who God is, and it is a way of authenticating that Moses and Aaron speak on his behalf. Okay? The other, and, and you have this all throughout, so all the plagues are described as signs and wonders. Other things that Moses does, both in Egypt and in the wilderness, are described as signs and wonders. They are clustered around this event. One more aside when it comes to the Exodus. This is the New Testament's favorite story, by far. By far. The New Testament writers knew their Old Testament. And when they were describing the work of Jesus and the redemption that comes the imagery they would draw upon was the Exodus account. It's their favorite story. It's God redeeming a people, a race of people that He loves dearly from the throes of bondage by some sort of divine intervention. And it doesn't come easy and it involves hardship, but it is a changing of allegiance from to Egypt to God. It is, I mean, just think of all the salvation themes flying through the Exodus account. If you want to read your New Testaments better, particularly the Gospels, and I would say Romans, learn the ex- just read the Exodus story over and over and over and over. This is the, these are the themes that the New Testament writers pull heavily on. Okay? So, that, uh, the signs and wonders are, are clustered in the, in the Exodus story. The other um, section of the Old Testament where we get some clarity when it comes to these, this particular word or this idea, that of a sign, is in the, in the prophetic books. When God's prophets come in and they, they speak on God's behalf, a good way to think of an Old Testament prophet is to think of a divine attorney. He comes in and he, and he levels accusations at the people. He says, you have failed your covenant obligations. And, and he, he basically defends God. I know that sounds a little weird. But he, he, he speaks on behalf of God and accuses the, the, the nation of Israel and says that your only way out of this is through repentance. And if not through repentance, then through judgment. That's, that's the prophet's job. He typically speaks to the kings, but often to the nation at large. In their prophetic activity, you have a number of signs and wonders. Um, let's go to Isaiah 20. Now, in, in the prophets here, you'll see that not all signs and wonders are miraculous. Some of them are just symbolic. And I wanted, to, I wanted to use these as examples because in John's Gospel, not everything Jesus does and not everything that He does that's described as a sign is miraculous. Some of it is just merely symbolic. 
but John, for whatever reason, calls it out as a sign. In Isaiah 20, the prophet Isaiah is speaking against Egypt and Cush. This is what he says. How far am I going to read? Just a few verses. In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist, and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Okay, so it's a funny story, but I wanted to read this because he doesn't really do anything all that special. Look, in fact, he just sounds crazy. Part of Isaiah's ministry was to walk around naked for three years. That was his ministry. Now, it's described as a sign because God is warning the nation that when he intervenes, don't come saying, I didn't tell you so. When you are, nakedness in scripture is generally associated with shame. When you fall, when your fall from grace comes, when you're taken away captive, when you are exposed for your shame, just remember what I've had my prophet saying to you this whole time, naked. That's the sign. And so in, when it comes to a prophetic text, a sign is it validates the message as being authentic and true and from God. You see the same thing here in Ezekiel 4. Just a couple books to the right. Ezekiel 4, verse 1. Ezekiel does kind of a, an ancient, it's, it's almost like a flannel graph. He's got a, little, he's got a little diagram that he's making. Ezekiel 4, verse 1. And you, son of man. Ezekiel was also called a son of man many times throughout this book. You, son of man, take a brick... Lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. So he's got kind of a little Lego set going on. And put siege works around it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you, take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege, and press the siege around it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So Ezekiel comes in as a prophet. Again, to warn the nation. Ezekiel is a, a pre- and post-exilic prophet. He lived through the exile. So this is a man who endured the punishment that was coming. He says, I want you to go and take a little brick and I want you to create a little, a little Lego set and show what's going to happen to the city and pronounce judgment on the city and you're going to be thought a fool today. You're going to be laughed at tomorrow. But when it happens, my people will remember the sign that you gave them. It is a way of authenticating his message. I think this is what John is drawing on. Moses comes in with an authentic message from God. Let my people go. Pharaoh hardens his heart, whether by choice or by force, and the signs stand in judgment against Pharaoh. Did you not see how powerful God was? Isaiah has a naked ministry, and Ezekiel builds little toy sets. And in both cases, God is speaking judgment against the nation, and when it happens... Do you remember the sign that I sent you? Do you not remember the good message my spokespeople offered? In John's Gospel, 
the signs, I, have, I mean, I kind of wrote it right there, they're a form of revelation given to authenticate divine messengers. And I think in the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, that's why we have the seven signs. They are establishing Jesus' Jesus's identity as He is who He says He is, and He is the true messenger from God. Here is uh, Andreas Kostenberger. He's the one who gave us the outline on the front. Here's his, mess- or his definition of the signs. This is dense, but it's good. A sign is a symbol-laden, but not necessarily miraculous, public work of Jesus, selected and explicitly identified as such by John for the reason that it displays God's glory in Jesus, who is thus shown to be God's true representative. Okay? Let me, let me just kind of unpack everything he's saying there. And I, and I broke it down in, the, in kind of the three, the, three, the three points below that. Andrews Kostenberger is saying that these are the three primary characteristics of one of these signs. They are done in public. Jesus, uh, uh, the seven signs identified in the gospel, none of them are done in private before the, before the, uh, the, like the disciples. They're done in public. That tells us something about their intent about their purpose, okay? They point to God's glory as displayed in Jesus, validating Him as God's messenger. And then they are intended to result in belief, okay? So now let me go in and just quickly read the Cana story that, that Kenny, Kenny story told his way through, but let me read to you some of the details in this story that point to the value of the signs. So in John chapter 2, First couple of verses, you have Jesus and his interaction with his mom. And some of you might be concerned that he calls his mom, Woman, what does that have to do? But, okay, let, let Jesus be Jesus and we won't stop to, to comment on whether or not that was a rude way to just talk to his mom. Okay, he's, he's the Lord, so he gets to decide how that works. Verse 6, though. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the, uh, drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This... The first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and it manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You're going to see in the the following six signs this connection between Jesus manifesting his glory, which is intrinsically tied to the glory of the Father, and its intent is to foster belief. His disciples, who are already following him, the disciples are complicated because it seems as if they fall in and out of belief. I don't know. But um, it says that when they, when they see what Jesus does and they get a glimpse of His glory, it, it produces belief in them. Now, jump down to uh, verse 18. So Jesus has already um, cleansed the temple. And he, uh, he is looked at as a very zealous man, a man who's fulfilling prophecy in many ways. But verse 18 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And then Jesus, this is fascinating. For us on the other side, we know Jesus wins this argument. 
But watch, technically in the story, he loses the argument. And in honor and shame society, he is silenced. He says, so they ask him, what sign do you, do, uh, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Points to the temple. Um, actually, I don't know if he's gesturing at the temple because he's not technically talking about the stone temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it again in three days? And then John just goes into like a, a, an explanatory or an editorial aside at that point. It doesn't tell us the end of the conversation. For all we know, Jesus is silenced and he loses the argument, which is a wonderful theme in John's Gospel, by the way. That Jesus willingly incurs shame. And... While we'll talk more next week in John 4 and 5 how this is a book that appears to be putting Jesus on trial, attempting to convict him for not being who he says he is. He is all the while turning the tables and convicting the world and, and uh, verifying that he is, in fact, who he says he is. So it seems like he loses the argument. But John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now this isn't one of the seven signs, but the, 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 the sign idea is still here. He changes the water into wine, and they, they, they see his glory, and it produces belief. Jesus says something about his body going down for three days and then coming back. And later on, in hindsight, they look at it, and it, it wells up in it's almost like it's ever-increasing degrees of belief in the disciples. This is, after all, John writing in probably 80. So 50 years after these events took place, John is still ruminating on these ideas. And if nothing else, that might help us understand what we do with these strange chapters that have no imperatives, have no instructions, have no commands for us. It's just, it's narrative. It's just story. And were I, to get, were I to bet, I mean, I don't know all of you, but I'm pretty sure that all of you in this room believe every word of these stories. And it's almost as if you're past the point of discovery. And so what do we do once we've learned about Jesus? And once we know these things, what do we do with these texts? I wonder if they're just intended to kind of shape the mind. I'm... I, I, I wish I could take John chapter 2 and 3 and run it through uh, a more practical application like the book of James. James is just a laundry list of instructions, right? It's like, it, it really is a bullet point with, you could put little boxes next to every verse and just go in and check them off after you do them. That's kind of how James is. John, not so much. I wonder if John, just for the, for the life of a believer, after you, after you encounter Jesus and you, you actually have the Spirit, I wonder if it's just there to continue to shape the mind. If it's a book to be dwelt on. If it's a book in intended to foster worship. Here is um, John Webster. He, he died last year. When he died, he was considered by many to be the, the world's most prominent living theologian. There's a man who, whatever room he walked in, he was immediately the smartest man in the room, was John Webster. He, he described the purpose of theology. So in John chapter 2 and 3, I see a lot of theology, particularly a lot of Trinitarian theology. 
a lot of Christological theology. That's John 1, too. That's all of the gospel. But here, it's really concentrated. What do we do with this theology? John Webster says, Theology's proper calling is the praise of God by crafting concepts to turn the mind to divine splendor. When I came across that line in one of his books, I just, I kept reading it over and over. And I thought, that's what John 2 and 3 are for. They are, I just need to keep dwelling on who Jesus is. This is why, you know, I've always been a fan of reading in big chunks. Like, I, if you have time to read all of John's gospel in one sitting, please do it. It's worth doing once. But it's also worth coming to these chapters and seeing this beautiful Jesus that's described and just slowing down and meditating on them. And just asking, like, how glorious is this Jesus? As Kenny described, who is bigger in terms of quantity than we can fathom and better than anyone can imagine. I am... uh, getting ready for a new class that we're offering this fall on the Trinity. Um, So this is the first book I've kind of started working through. It's called uh, The Triune God by Fred Sanders. It's from a a really good series that they're just now starting to publish called New Studies in Dogmatics. It's a Zondervan book. But he, he constructs his book around this ancient chant or hymn or recitation called the Gloria Patri, which I put right there for you. This is a fascinating little idea because this, these three short lines came into common usage in about the 300s. Think um, right as they were penning the Nicene Creed. This is something that the church started to incorporate into its worship. And it was there for 900, about a thousand years before it fell out of favor. Now, what they did with this is they, they quoted it after reading any psalm. They would, they would say it together in unison before, encou- before engaging in corporate prayer. Now, what this did is this... So, think Council of Nicaea. They're establishing whether or not Jesus is like eternal. Did God create Jesus or was He... And Drew mentioned that last week. Or is Jesus forever existent? Is He fully one with the Godhead? Is he, is he one with the Father in such a way that he was never, there was never a point where He wasn't? And the Council of Nicaea rightly determined, yes, He is fully one with the Father. And so this, this Trinitarian mantra came out. And they said, every time we read Scripture, we can't let this idea of the fullness and the complexity and the beauty of God go too far from our faces. And every time we enter into prayer together, this needs to be on our minds. And I just love, it's, it's brief and it is forever deep. And so they would say this, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. If Anthony was here, we would have got an amen at the Holy Ghost part. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Now, when Fred Sanders spends 50-something pages dissecting this, I was starting to get annoyed. Fred, you are running... uh, Can we not go to Scripture yet? Why why do we got to play this game? But what he was contending is that this is... 
This is so worth dwelling on. This, the, the depth of the Godhead rightly um, appropriates Scripture so that when we read John 2 and 3, we aren't left looking for practical ideas. We're just, we see this God right here and we just kind of get quiet in worship. Or if Kayla Hodgen were still here, get very loud in worship. But this is, these are the kind of lines that just, they make me where um, on Sunday morning sometimes we'll sing songs that have, especially if they have a heavy doxological um, flavor to them. Usually by about the third verse, my, my voice is gone. Like It's one of those where I'm trying not to cry, and so my voice just stops. And that, that's what these, these worshipful moments are for me. I think that's what I want. I want to find that in John 2 and 3, when Jesus is described as being so incredible that He can take a little bit of dirty water and turn it into something beautiful, and His glory is shown in the process. I'm going to read you one line out of Fred's book and then I'll let you go. This is another short sentence, but it's dense. He says this, kind of going on and on about the, the idea that we would turn our mind, that we would repent into knowing who the Trinity is and constantly let it shape us He says this, this is the very last sentence of that section. He said, this is the matrix of Trinitarian theology. This list right here. Wonder, love, and praise. Wonder, love, and praise. That's the matrix of, why do we study the Trinity? Why do we dwell upon the God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, who was forever in the past and is now and will forever be? Because it produces wonder, love, and praise. For what? That God has done for us and our salvation something that manifests and enacts what He is in Himself. And what Fred will go on to explain is what he means by that. How it manifests what He is in Himself. He'll say, God doesn't offer grace to you. He is grace to you. He doesn't have any love to give. He just is love. He doesn't have redemption to offer. He is redemption. Um, a few years ago, I got in a bunch of trouble. In, uh, but I, I'm still holding on to the fact that I was right when I said this. I just said it in an interesting way. I said in a Tuesday morning Bible study, you might have been there, Marilyn. Jesus, uh, or I said, salvation is not a gift. It's simply not. Because the idea of a gift is something that I can have, something I can take with me, something I can now that has changed. If Tim is going to give me a gift, it is changing hands. It was his, now it's mine. That is not salvation, biblically described. Now, they use gift language, which is accommodating language, to just say it's something freely given in terms of you you can't purchase it, you can't do anything to own it yourself. But it's, it's not a gift in the sense that I can possess it. Jesus does, according to John's Gospel, does not offer life. He is life. He doesn't show you the way. He is the way. He can't give you resurrection. He simply is resurrection. And, and this, is, this is one of the fascinating things about studying the Trinity is the Trinity has very little to offer outside of itself. The Trinity is grace. The Trinity is love. The Trinity is redemption, resurrection, 
the truth, life, all these things, they're just intrinsic to who God is. When I think about the Trinity like that, I start to get chills up and down my spine. And that's where it's, oh, John 2 and 3 was more practical than I thought. It brought me to a point of worship. It brought me to a point where I know Jesus. Now I know Jesus. I can see Him more clearly. I can see Him more clearly. John is, is in the end, an evangelistic book. John 20, verse 30 says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, I'm assuming everyone in this room has already believed in that name. We keep reading to keep enjoying greater and greater degrees of life in His name as we become more and more formed into His own likeness. I apologize if this feels um, nebulous and overly ethereal, but I wonder if that's if like if John two and three should should hit us in a way that I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that, but I just know that it's like it's some really good stuff in that Bible there, and I should keep reading it and dwelling on it, and meditating on it. Let me pray for us. We'll shut it down. Father, you are exceedingly, breathtakingly good. And we are forever grateful for your scriptures that you thought it worthwhile to condescend to our level, to speak in our languages, and to describe the infinite using the finite. I pray that we would find you in the scriptures in such a way that we are left standing in wonder, in awe. And I'm grateful that we have your son to look at, to see the father, that he sent the spirit so that in his name we have the, the power to pray to you, to, to worship you, to study you, and to become more like your son. I ask that over the next eight weeks we would find this gospel edifying. We would find it refreshing and we would find it delightful and awe-inspiring. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.